Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, July 16th, we are studying Judges chapter 6, verses 25 through 40. Gideon's work as judge begins at home, fighting against the idolatry of his own household and community. Yet even his success there is not enough to dispel Gideon's fears. He asks not for one, but for two signs from God to prove his word. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us Pastor Rick Jones. Pastor Jones serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Timothy. It's great to be here. As we get started this morning, we're, Pastor Jones, we find ourselves in the middle of the Gideon narrative. Towards the beginning, we've, we've seen his call yesterday. We've learned a little bit about him. We're going to find out more today. What context do we need to know within that Gideon narrative here in the book of Judges, and also anything from the wider context of the book as a whole as we look at these verses for today? Sure. Um the book of Judges is, is actually one of my favorites. It's, it's fascinating. Um, it has the cycle of salvation over and over and over again. So the, the, the idea that the people fall away, they, they, they sin, they receive consequences for that sin. Uh, throughout the book of Judges, it's through oppression from the, the foreign peoples uh, that they are now following those pagan gods. And so God hands them over to their sin and they receive those consequences They see the error of their ways. They cry out for mercy. God sends them a deliverer or a judge to to rescue them. And then there's a period of peace uh, for usually, you know, a a set of generations or so or until the judge has passed on. For Gideon, um, we see a very tentative judge. He is not one to have confidence and bravado. He very much questions and doubts. We see that several places in that narrative. You saw it yesterday, if you saw his call, right, as the angel of the Lord visits him, he, he is is not sure what's going on. We see the same thing here, um, and we'll see it again after this um, with his army. God has to seek to dispel all of Gideon's fear, while at the same time showing that it is God that is going to save his people. Um, so, again, within the book of Judges, the people do evil in the sight of the Lord— they receive punishment, oppression for, for their sin. They, uh, they cry out for deliverance, and God sends a judge to save them. Here in this case, it's the Midianites that they are being oppressed by. The Midianites are described as locusts in verse uh, 5 of chapter 6 because they're so numerous, and they devour and destroy everything in their path. Uh, the people are so afraid of them that they hide everything. That's why at the beginning of the Gideon cycle, he's, he's in a— um, a wine press while he's threshing wheat. That seems ridiculous, but they were that that fearful. Um, but yeah, God is going to deliver them despite our fear, despite our inability. He's going to do it through his will. And we're going to see that play out in the Gideon's, Gideon's narrative here. Hmm. It's Fear is definitely a major theme uh, of the entire narrative. 
as um, Gideon is reluctant to take his his call as a judge, and then he is reluctant to gather the army. Uh, but God ultimately is going to overcome that, not just by sheer force of the Israelites that answer the call, but he's going to make it uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I don't want to spoil anything if you're going to go on to the next part of the narrative there, but uh, it's definitely no question that God is the one that's going to give them deliverance. Right. Uh, Gideon, I think you called him a tentative judge. You said that fear is going to be a big part of this narrative, which yeah. I, I'm just I'm thinking I'm thinking a little bit about this. Gideon, I would say, is one of the two well-known judges from this book. Most people, I think, really know Samson. They, they remember mm-hmm. him from Sunday school. And Gideon, I think we we learn about him too, it seems, but they do, they have a bit of uh, contrast between the two of them just in their personalities. Samson is, oh, yeah. is much more bravado. He just, he just goes. And Gideon is very tentative, uh, fearful, as we will see in this narrative today. And, and that, that provides a bit of an opportunity to, to talk a little bit about Pastor Jones, something that you, you looked up that I don't think I would have known uh, simply because I don't generally celebrate the feast day of St. Thomas. The feast day (laughs) of St. Thomas falls uh, on December 21st, which is of course, right before Christmas. And normally I think it gets neglected perhaps for that reason. Uh, But in in your, in your study for this, you you found that part of the text that we're going to read today actually occurs as the old Testament reading for the feast of St. Thomas. So what's the significance of that for what we're going to read today? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I always think it's nice to to see how a text is used by the, the church at large. Um, we had a devoted and dedicated group that put together the, the lectionary cycles that we get to enjoy with the LSB. And uh, I, I think it's important that we see what other people think about these texts and the way in which we pick them and arrange them, I think, comes to bear on that. So with this text... Um, being the Feast of St. Thomas, we know Thomas, Doubting Thomas, we often give him sort of a cutesy sort of nickname there, but it's it's really not a, a happy time for Thomas when, when Jesus confronts him about it. Um, because Thomas, it, it, it's a refusal of faith, right? He refuses the testimony of the, the eyewitnesses. He refuses the testimony of his fellow disciples. And he demands, I will not believe unless I, I, I see the Lord and touch, touch his wounds, right? Um for Gideon, it's a, it's a similar thing. I will not believe the testimony of the Lord unless he provides these signs for me. And we're going to see that that is first a, a wet fleece and then a dry fleece. He refuses to to believe that God is going to deliver them, as he said, unless he sees this sign. So I think that's why this Gideon narrative was, was selected. It, it pairs very nicely. It parallels the same sort of lack of faith or, or unbelief that Thomas displays. Gideon and Thomas are are a pair in that way. Um, I mean, I didn't even think about it till just now, but because Thomas means twin, maybe this is his twin in faith <laughs> is Gideon. I mean, there there are definitely going to be similarities, and I think that will be a helpful foil for us to keep in mind as we get to that. That's going to be the very last couple verses of our text for yep. today, what is selected as the Old Testament reading for St. Thomas' feast in, in December. But it is a, a helpful thing to keep in mind, and I think a, a wise pairing is, as we will see how— Gideon refuses to receive the testimony of the Lord himself. I mean, Gideon has come face to face with the Lord already. He's he's recognized that he should die. And and yet he's going to have that same struggle of doubt that St. Thomas has 
from the eyewitness testimony of his fellow apostles. So that's going to be a helpful foil, I think, for us. And, and we may come back to that when we get to that text toward the end of the, the show today. So with that, Pastor Jones, let's go ahead and, and start reading. We are in Judges chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, to Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family, and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. All right, so we'll we'll pause there. Let let's let's just make sure we have the scene set in our minds, Pastor Jones. What's and and the first thing that that comes is well, this matter of two bulls that the Lord says to use. There's only one that's going to be sacrificed. Why why are there two bulls? Yeah, if if you look at the commentaries and stuff, this is always the first question in this section, which. Honestly, when I first read it, I, I didn't even care. <laughs> I'm like, oh, then that makes a little sense when you kind of get people's explanations. Like, well, you always use a pair of oxen, right, to, to do heavy work. And so it probably takes two bulls to tear down this altar. It's it's a fixture here on, on the property. It is it is a major part of the people's lives. And so it's going to take – it's going to be built substantially. And so it's going to take the two bulls to tear it down. Um as to why only one of them is mentioned with the detail of being seven years old um, and then being the sacrifice, well, seven years is how long the Midianites had been in power, how long they had been oppressing the Israelites. And so the the thought amongst the scholars here is that this bull is representative of that time, representative of the faithfulness to, to Baal instead of to Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And so by mentioning that bull and that one being one of the sacrificed it's it's sort of an irony right this bull is probably set aside for this this pagan idolatry and now it's being offered in a right sacrifice to the true living god um so that's i think the the bull issue sure and and i think uh, one of the things the irony that is there in using a bull seven years old the same length of time that there had been this faithlessness to yahweh and faithfulness to to Baal, that matter of irony is something that we'll see more than once yes. in in this text. And really, it, it's there throughout much of the Old Testament when the Lord goes to battle against idols. <clears throat> there's mockery of the idols. You, you see it in, in several places. And, and there's, there's one that, that will come to mind particularly as, well, We'll get there. That, that may. I just want to put that out there for the time being, just to, to keep in mind, watch for the irony and the mockery of idols as worthless, those which cannot truly help, as opposed to the Lord, who is living and active, who truly can help his people. So I, I, we want to make sure that we, we keep that in, in focus in this text, and we can expand it out too. Now, I, I think that irony we will see even more clearly here, if we know a little bit about Baal and Asherah. Now, for readers of the Old Testament, the names Baal and Asherah are familiar, but sometimes we don't really dig in, well, who is Baal, who is Asherah, and what was this Canaanite worship 
of theirs. What did that look like? I think if we if we dig into that a little bit today, Pastor Jones, that's going to help us see some of the irony. So help us help us understand more about Baal and Asherah. Yeah, yeah, we'll give you the uh, the quick the quick <laughs> summary there. Um, obviously, whenever you're dealing with uh, a full religious system, it's it's very complex and, and robust. But the, so the quick version is. Baal and Asherah are Canaanite deities. Baal is sort of the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon. He was often associated with harvests and storms, uh, in particular the cycle of of harvest and the weather that provided for the people. The name simply means lord or owner, so the chief god is just the lord. Uh, That's Baal. And so the similarity there could be uh, Baal could be a term similar to the Hebrew El, which is the first part of Elohim, which is the, the generic God in Hebrew. Um, I think this is this is sort of funny. You're talking about the mockery that we see in Old Testament. One of the more typical known names for the, the pagan gods would be Beelzebub or Beelzebaal. Uh, that comes from this, meaning that's the the Lord part is the Baal. Lord of the Flies is how that often gets translated. The idea here is is your your God is so worthless that it's the Lord of Flies because what controls flies but dung, and so it's calling these enemies gods a a, a dung god essentially, which might seem really funny, uh, but what an insult to throw at somebody, you know. Um, but anyway, I, I digress, I guess. <laughs> um, for Asherah, Asherah is a female deity um, and the sister wife of Baal and often connected to fertility. So again, that idea of cycle and, and life uh, is there. And so the two are often worshipped in conjunction. And the worship specifically with Asherah would be focused on life. And so trees or the trunk of a tree or we call it an Asherah pole would typically be the worship site or the the image of, of worship for Asherah, the symbol of life and, and ongoing fertility. The worship of the two deities together would play on this cycle of, of harvest and life. And so they'd be oftentimes associated with sexual acts and then acts of sacrifice. So not not too pleasant. No, not not at all. There, I mean, there's there's a there's multiple reasons why the Lord tells His people to avoid this sort of worship and wipe it out from the land, and and those very real uh, physical effects upon a person that, that you're talking about that would have been involved in the worship of these two idols is part of what the Lord doesn't want for His people. So yeah. the way that that this goes down then with Gideon taking these two oxen or these two bulls to yeah. destroy the altar of Baal and to destroy this pole, this this Asherah pole that's there, and then to sacrifice the bull. Well, I mean, that, that description, I think, then adds to the irony and the mockery that we see of, of Baal and Asherah, because, mm-hmm. it, and so you... Well, paint that picture for us. What what is Gideon? He tears down this this altar. He sacrifices a bull. How do we see that mockery of these two gods within that very scene? Yeah, absolutely. So not only is he using the bull prepared to sacrifice to Baal that to to tear down the altar of Baal, he also cuts down uh, or chops down the Asher pole. And this is actually a fulfillment of Gideon's name. His name means chopper or striker. Or cutter, so he's he's doing the very act for which he's named, and he's doing it to destroy the idols, and then 
The bull gets offered to Yahweh, a right sacrifice now, one set aside for a false god now offered to the true God after dismantling that, that, that pagan idol. And now the Asherah pole, the, the thing they were worshiping, gets used as the fuel for this burnt offering. So he's, he's burning up the, the effigy that they were, they were worshiping as a source of life to be a source of death and, and sacrifice to the, the true God, which is, yeah, absolute, as you said, it's mockery. It's, it's, it's irony in, in the very demonstration and the very carrying out of the act. Hmm. Uh, there, there's that. Uh, one of the, the more famous passages concerning the mockery of idolatry and the foolishness of idolatry, idolatry in the Old Testament is, is on Isaiah chapter 44, which within that long section of poetry there, there's a, a bit of prose. And within that section, I'm just going to read a couple verses here, Pastor Jones, from Isaiah mm-hmm. 44. It's talking again about idolatry. And I think you see a, a picture here of what happens in Judges 6. So this is Isaiah 44, beginning at verse uh, 14. He, that would be the worshiper of idols, he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. So, I mean, that's that's the fuel, right, that you would use yeah. a tree for. That's the Asherah pole, in this case, in Judges 6. Then mm-hmm. the text continues in Isaiah 44. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before of it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. And, I mean, So there, there's Isaiah uh, mocking idolatry in, in word. Gideon, here at the direction of the Lord, does the same thing in his deed. This, this yeah. pole that has been set up as a god is used for fuel, to, to burn a sacrifice— which should be evident in in any case, but that's just the foolishness of idolatry. That's the the great temptation of idolatry is to think that we can set up these gods of our own and and worship them as if they can take care of us, and in fact they can't. And and the Lord shows that here very vividly, and He yep. does it. He does it even through. And this takes us back to what we were talking about at the beginning. He does it through this very tentative, fearful man Gideon because he does all of this we get this this quote this this uh, note from the narrator that Gideon took 10 of his men as his servants he did it but he was too afraid and he did it at night instead of at day yeah 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 so he's been as you said confronted by the Lord himself says he should be dead has a divine encounter so he's should be beyond you know any doubt or anything now but he's still so fearful that he has to do it at night and and i love that the narrator tells us uh it's not fear of the lord that's motivating him here it's it's fear of the townspeople it's fear of his his family and the other people there because he he knows they're going to kill him he knows they're going to be so upset they're so far from a right relationship with god that they're going to kill him for tearing down an idol 
and it's in our day and age, I think it's, it's almost unfathomable to think that, but that's, that's where they're at. That's how fearful Gideon is. Um, yeah, I think when I, when I was reading through this text, it, it, uh, it brought to mind the, the words of the, the catechism, right? Um, God's chosen deliverer here is more fearful of townspeople than he seems to be of God himself. So fear, love, and trust in God above all things, that does not seem to be a part of Gideon's character, at least not yet, um, or certainly not the way that his father Joash is bringing up his, his family, right? Mm-hmm. I appreciate you bringing out the first commandment. I'm I'm always a big fan of using the catechism whenever we can, because I think mm-hmm. sometimes we just we forsake it too quickly as adults, and we we need to constantly be reminded of it. So, and I think it's I think it's a good thing to bring out here uh, for that word fear. You know, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, which then gets used in every commandment. We should fear and love God so that absolutely every, everything else. And, and I don't know about you, Pastor Jones, when I was confirmed, and, and even still when I talk to my youth confirmation students, we talk about that word fear, we tend to default to, well, what does it mean that we should fear God? Well, it means awe, respect for him. But I, I think sometimes we leave out that part of the fear of God, there should be a, a bit of fear and trembling sort of fear before God, that that a recognition that He's God, we're not, and that should that should scare us a little bit. Yeah. Sort of like Gideon is scared of the townspeople here. He should be thinking that way more towards God, and that should be influencing his actions. Absolutely right. We when we we teach confirmation and stuff, I, I tend to do the same thing. It's not, yeah. There's there's a healthy awe and and reverence and respect, but it's it's much bigger than that. This is the maker of the universe that you're being confronted with here. He can undo you with a thought. Mm. Um, that's, that sh- should have a little bit of fear behind it, not terror because he's also a merciful God, right? Uh, he's a loving God, but, but so not terror, but absolutely healthy fear. Mm. Um, I, I think Matthew uh, 10, 28, you know, when Jesus is teaching, you know, do not fear, those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's that's who is charging Gideon with these tasks. And yeah, he doesn't seem to have that in mind. Hmm. That Matthew 10 passage, I think, is a fantastic one when it comes to considering the fear of God and what that truly means. Because on the one hand, Jesus says very clearly, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But as he continues to, to speak there, he, he reminds you who this one is who can do this to you. He's also the one who, who watches over the sparrows and doesn't let them fall yeah, apart from yeah. his own and, and knows how many hair you, hairs you have on your head. So that by the time Jesus gets to verse 31, he says, fear not because you're of more value than, than many sparrows. And all of that yeah. then leads to verses 32 and 33 that, that, it calls for a confession, right? Confession of who Christ is before men. So, I, I, all right, so let's see if I can bring all this yeah. together now, right? <laughs> oh, you just did a great job. Of, I was looking at my next note here, and that's, I'm like, wow, you did it. You right back around to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That's, that's always nice when, when I think along the same lines as a guest. <laughs> that usually means I'm, I'm doing a pretty decent job thinking about it. So, <laughs> so let, let me try to, I'll try to summarize, and then I'll, you feel free to, to respond. So the, the idea is that when we, when we fear God properly, when we recognize who he is, 
what he's done, how we stand in relation to him as as beggars who deserve nothing, as as rebels who deserve punishment, as those who need his mercy and grace, when we have that proper fear of God, then what that ends up doing is it actually takes away our fear to stand in his presence because we know he's a merciful God who who wins the victory for us to, to maybe try to tie this to Gideon, to Gideon a little bit too. And we're we're emboldened, we're freed and we're freed to speak of his name before all come what may. Uh, to, does that does that kind of mesh with what you're talking about? Well, I was yeah, just when you brought up the idea of come, it brings about the opportunity to confess, right? That when we really have a fear of God, we know we know what that means. Uh, the psalmist, right? With you, there is there is forgiveness that you might be feared. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when Gideon tears down this this altar to a, a false god. The townspeople should be reminded that, oh, yeah, we're not supposed to do that anyway, because we have the living God on our side. We have the Lord who delivered us from Egypt and gave us his law, gave us his will, gave us the commandments. They should be seeing this as an opportunity to confess and repent and therefore receive further mercy. Instead, they're furious. They want justice for their idol uh, with the blood of the one who is responsible for tearing it down. They, they, they're that far away from just a few generations before Hmm. they're they're that far away from the Exodus. They're that far away from the Passover already. Hmm. Which is, which is precisely where Jesus goes there in Matthew chapter 10 as well. After he talks about confessing him before others, he talks about the division that is inherent in that confession, even within families and, and communities, as we see in the case of, of Gideon here, that, that those who don't confess Christ will lash out against those who do. And that's what we yeah. see here in, in this text. And I think we're going to pick that section of the narrative up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking to Pastor Rick Jones about Judges 6. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 16th, and we are studying Judges chapter 6, verses 25 through 40 with Pastor Rick Jones. Pastor Jones serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, prior to the break, we looked at the first couple of verses there where Gideon takes a bull that would have been normally used to sacrifice for Baal, and he uses that very bull with the fuel from the Asherah pole to worship the true God. He does it by night because he was afraid, and, well, we're going to find out that his predicted reaction of his fellow townspeople, well, he was right. He was right. And we've we've started talking about this already, so let's go ahead and read the text here in Judges 6. We're picking up at verse 28 now. 
When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now, we'll pause there. That was verses 28 through 32. So, Pastor Jones, we, we alluded to this prior to the break. They wake up early in the morning, and there's the altar broken down. The pole's been cut down. There's been a sacrifice made on this other altar. They look into it, and they become they become furious, which this is, well, a, a couple of thoughts there. One, as I think you said, it shows just how far the people of Israel have fallen in this case. The, the book of Judges over and over again shows itself to be a, a less than happy time for the people of Israel yes, when it comes to yes. their religious life. And this is just one of those examples where they've been shown what true worship should look like, even in this fearful act of Gideon, and they react to it with great anger. And so you see how far they've fallen. On the other hand, I think you also see our natural sinful reaction to whenever an idol is torn down, whenever something we've been relying on is taken away, if we're not going to react in repentance, we often react in anger toward the yes. one who had the audacity to show us that that's a false God. We, we usually don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's uh, as they would tell us at the seminary, that'll preach, right? That, that, that'll <laughs> preach. Uh, and how many how many pastors have gotten a uh, a question or uh, an accusation because uh, maybe the sermon they delivered was a little too poignant about someone's little pet sin or pet idol? Uh, but yeah, we like to react out of anger uh, when our our idols are toppled when our, when they're torn down. Um, and you're right uh, with the idea that this is this kind of happens over and over again in the book of Judges until the people are sufficiently humbled that they they cry out for mercy. Um, I forgot to mention it at the beginning, but that's kind of the mantra of the book, right? There was, it's before the monarchy, it's after the conquest. In that time, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Mm. That sounds good at first, but ultimately we realize the heart of man is sinful, and so we 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 fall away. And this is absolutely demonstration of that. The people are furious; they're they're not responding out of faithfulness being reminded of, of what faithfulness looks like. Instead, they respond out of anger. They, they dig into their sin. They dig in their heels. Their hearts are hardened, and they, they're out for blood. And they, they can only see killing Gideon as the the way to proceed. Um, however, Gideon's father intervenes uh, on behalf of his son, which is really fascinating because it was his altar. It was his... <laughs> His uh, property that this stuff was associated with, it's, it's his idol, and the father isn't one of those that is angry. Now, we don't see that he's necessarily super proud, but he's definitely willing to 
take the correction where the other people are not right he intervenes for his son um and how he does that is by questioning Baal's worthiness as a god he he points out how worthless Baal is um he asks does does this Baal does this god need you to contend for him do you need to save this one that you're supposed to be worshiping uh, the word there uh, that they used for contend it's it's riv in the, in the hebrew um it has a legal connotation. So the idea is, do you need to go and contend in court on behalf of this idol? Do you need to go and seek legal justice on behalf of, of bail? It's, it's, it's absolutely absurd, but he's pointing out that absurdity. The absurdity is not in what Gideon has done. The absurdity is in the worship of this thing in the first place. Mm. He's questioning Baal's power. He's, he, he needs, if he needs mere men to seek justice on his behalf, He's not a real God, right? A real God does not need to be delivered by their worshipers. Mm. Um, so again, the, 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 the irony comes up here again too, right? The, the, the savior empowered by the Lord has, has challenged Baal and his people, his people, um, his worshipers now need to save him. So the judge, the, the savior tears down the idol pointing out that, the people weren't being saved by that one. That's a false savior. And now they have to turn themselves into false judges, false saviors, if they're going to stand on behalf of Baal. Right. Yeah. There's, there's tons of, of tons of irony here. Joash is an, is an interesting figure and, and I don't want to, we don't want to psychologize because the, the text no, no, simply no. doesn't say why, <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yeah, no. you know, it, it doesn't say Joash came to his senses or he repented or, or what it, it is, it, but it is ironic because this was his own stuff that had been used yeah. for this. And yet he's willing to stand up for his son. Again, was this genuine repentance? We don't know, but he does stand up for his son and he, he yeah. ends up whether, whether knowingly or not, he ends up preaching a pretty good sermon against idolatry for precisely for what you're talking about. What, what kind of God needs someone else to fight for him? The, that's the whole point of the God is that he's the one to do the fighting. He's the one to do the delivering. And, and I think, you know, and I don't, I want to be careful here, but I think there may be something to that, that legal connotation that you brought out with the, with the term reeve or riv in Hebrew, that, that this is, it has that courtroom context. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, and that anytime I, I hear that, I, I start to think about justification to, you know, how does, how does God contend for us by declaring us innocent? And when we try to do that for ourselves, that's where we run into all kinds of trouble. And, and when we would try to sort of justify God, we can't do that. I, I, again, I'm just, I'm trying to, that contrast between the idolatry of Baal and Asherah versus the true worship of the Lord Yahweh, who is the one who does contend for us, who does justify us, goes to court for us to declare us innocent. And and we don't do that ourselves. Showing himself again to be the true God in the face of these idols. It it also it also struck me a, a little bit as as you were talking, you know, so so Baal can fight for himself, and, and that's the the proof. I'm not I'm not sure what to do with this, Pastor Jones. So maybe you can help me draw a couple connections here. But this it sounds an awful lot like some of the mockery that Jesus heard on the cross. You know, prove to us you're the Christ by coming down 
and saving yourself. And, and yet it ends up being that very sacrifice that he makes in, in what is called foolishness by the world where he, he saves us. I'm not, I'm not sure how to make that connection here to Gideon, but it just, the, the irony, I guess, again, as to the way that God finally does choose to save us and deliver us comes in that moment where he refuses to save himself and instead goes willingly to death for us. I, I don't know. Does that? Yeah, I, no. Yeah, I, I, I like where you're trying to go with the, especially the, the image of justification and things as we always put that in a, a courtroom sort of setting. Um, ultimately, it comes down to God provides us with justice through the greatest act of injustice, right? The innocent son of God, God, the son, Jesus, perfectly blameless, the, the, the lamb without blemish. He takes on all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of the uh, accusations that could be brought against us. He takes them on himself, uh, and that is our legal counsel. Right? He defends us by taking the punishment upon his own shoulders. And so the idea that we would have a God that we need to defend when, in fact, it's exactly the other way around, we are not capable of defending him. He's not needing of our defense. Instead, he's going to contend on our behalf because we are so woefully unable. Um, I, I think it's funny. You, if you're going to end up going through the, the whole book of Judges, I think you, you need to keep that, um, the mockery that Jesus endured on the cross um, and the, the insults that were slung at him. I think you need to keep that in mind when you get to Jephthah, uh, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Um, I think that, uh, that'll connect for you to, to Jephthah's vow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So not, sorry not to do other people's work. For no, me. that's okay. That's okay. That's that's one of the <laughs> I'm, nice I'm things. I'm preaching through the judges right now. And, uh, that was what came to my mind. So that you went there already is really, really kind of, huh. um, yeah, I'm going to have to keep that in mind as we go through it and just, <laughs> and just see, see how that, that plays out. So to, to tie more back to what we're looking at, particularly here with Gideon. So the, yeah, this, yeah. This argument that Joash gives on behalf of his son saying, look, if, if Baal's going to fight for himself, let him fight for him. You don't need to do his dirty work. <laughs> Apparently, it's good enough for the people at the moment. Their anger is abated a little bit. And Gideon gets himself a new name, which is, is worth spending yeah. a minute or two on because as the narrative continues, sometimes this name shows up instead of Gideon. And we just want to make sure we know who we're talking about as the narrative goes forward. Yeah. Yeah. So, um in his intervening on behalf of his son, uh, which was, you know, questioning balls or bales need to be contended for, he, he gives his son Gideon the new name Jerubal or Jerubal, the, the idea that let Baal contend for himself or let Baal contend. Um, if he's if he's truly worthy, let him let him contend for himself, because that's basically what Gideon is, is challenging in his action there. Right. By tearing down his altar, by tearing down the the pagan worship sites dedicated to Baal. He's making Baal have to contend for himself to prove his worth as a, a true deity. Hmm. I guess uh, putting it putting into despite the the fear and the trepidation we see in Gideon, he still had the the gall or confidence to challenge Baal and make him contend for himself by tearing down the altar in the first place. It's um it's a it's a strange construction. Um, 
for it to mean let bail contend. And so that's why I think the, the author writes it in that way, uh, explaining for it. It's actually, in later parts of the text, you'll see variants or you'll see uh, a different name provided, and it's, it's Jerubashef. Because that, I guess, is the construction that we we should expect if it's if it's put in that case for let bail contend. But um, that's neither here nor there. It's just a little textual anomaly. But yeah, he'll he'll be it'll go back and forth sometimes. But we're still talking about Gideon. But we're talking about him now through this defining act that has elevated him to the place of the deliverer, the judge that God God has called him to be. And so, I mean, just to to use that then as a jumping point to the next section of the narrative, Gideon, despite his fear earlier, is on a, a bit of an upward trajectory. You might say, in terms of you know, he's 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 done this, he's gotten a, a name for it, and and yeah. now as the text continues, I mean, it seems like things are moving in the right direction for Gideon. So now let's read a little farther, Judges six thirty three. Now all the Midianites. And the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. All right, we'll, we'll pause there again. And it does, I mean, just thinking through Gideon here, he he seems like yeah. things are moving up for him, right? Now he's he's got a new name. The, the enemies are coming together, but here comes the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord clothes Gideon. And that's a pretty key phrase within the book of Judges, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon one of the judges. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of their appointment or their their anointing to that position, right? Um, it's 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 similar to to any time the the spirit of the Lord is poured out on someone, right? They're being set aside or empowered for a specific task, and in this case, it is Gideon reaching the next level of his call as the deliverer. So the interlude here sets up that the enemy armies are gathering; they're they're getting together in a huge number. And God responds in kind. Uh, he, yes, it's a foreboding scene, but he's going to give Gideon the true fullness of the call now by clothing him in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Yahweh. So yes, definitely the Holy Spirit. Um, but it's just further underpinning the idea that every faithful act and every saving act or saving work, and I, I typically would say in the book of Judges, but really it's, it's throughout the entire Bible. Anytime there's there's some big act of salvation, it's instituted and carried out by the power of and according to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's always God doing it. Even through the means of men, yes, he calls men to do these things. It is God saving his people. He's calling forth deliverers, saviors by his spirit. And here Gideon's empowerment means that he's going to gather the forces of Israel to prepare for battle. But even here, I think it's funny that we, we get to see a little bit of that tentative nature still coming out because he starts with, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll get the guys that can hear my trumpet right there. The, the, the group that's local, we'll get them. And now that I'll have greater numbers, I'll go and I'll send to the other armies and we'll go tribe by tribe until we get a big, big number. So he's, he's using those numbers that are slowly amassing around him or slowly gathering around him to muster further confidence and courage for the rest of them to join. So even that he's taking in his sort of baby steps to, to make sure he's, he's going to be brave enough to do it. 
Mm. Yeah. So, but again, I, I do think you, you do see him. He seems like he's moving in the right direction, at least at oh, this yeah, point, absolutely. you know, and, and that I think, especially with the spirit of the Lord clothing him, that this is the Lord now working through Gideon to accomplish his deliverance. And that's going to become very plain, particularly as we get to the, the part of the text that we do know very well from, from Sunday school when it comes to the way that he actually defeats the Midianites. And that's, that's coming down yeah. the road, yeah. but, but he, he seems like he's moving in the right direction. And then you get to verse 36, and this is now the, the text that we alluded to at the very beginning. The rest of this mm-hmm. is is what gets read on the feast day of St. Thomas, December 21st, pairing with the idea of doubting Thomas. Well, here's the twin. Here's mm-hmm. doubting Gideon. So let's, let's see what happens now. Gideon has been clothed, the spirit of the Lord. He's begun to gather an army to himself. What's Gideon's next move? Judges 6.36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was a dew. And that's the end of the text. That was Judges six thirty-six through verse 40. So, I mean, I think just, just reading through it pretty straightforward as to why this would get paired with the gospel reading from John 20 concerning Thomas and his right. demand to see Jesus scars himself and to refuse to believe the testimony. Here it seems like you've got Gideon doing pretty much the same thing, only he's demanding it from, well, Thomas demands it from Jesus. Gideon demands it from God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and the idea that it's it's set up on the testimony, right? Because God gave the testimony, I will save, you, save Israel through you. Um, Thomas doubts the or refuses the testimony of the other apostles that have seen the empty tomb and saw the risen Lord. Now, um, Gideon is refusing the testimony of of the Lord himself, saying that he will do this thing. Um, So, yeah, absolutely a clear connection there, uh, a great pairing for the Feast of St. Thomas. Um, it was it was a well well thought out choice. I think I agree with it very much. I, I, I just kind of wish we had more of these sorts of narratives in the the greater lectionary cycle. But yeah. no, a beautiful beautiful pairing here um, helps demonstrate that theme of doubt and demanding you know signs from God where that puts us, and then how we get back in a proper relationship. But it also reveals. A little bit about who God is and, and how He's going to respond, despite our lack of faith, despite our unbelief. The text here uh, does something really interesting. Up until this point, it is when God is interacting with Gideon or God is speaking. It's it's the Lord. It's it's the proper name of God. It's Yahweh all over the place. But here it switches to God from Yahweh to Elohim. So not as this not as descriptive, not as specific. It's not the name that we that Moses hears at the burning bush. It goes back to the generic word for God. And so this is probably a subtle allusion 
to Gideon's lack of faith, his, his lack of trust, his unbelief here, and maybe even a lack of understanding of who Yahweh truly is. Because then he goes on to demand the signs. He says, I'm, he's demanding signs from God. He says the he's going to, in a sense, use that name that he's been given by his father, right? Uh, let Baal contend. Well, now let, let God contend. Hmm. He demands signs, uh, a demonstration from God that this is this is a true word that he's really going to save him. So yeah, the unbelief here definitely an easy connection to the the Thomas narrative. Um, but to me, it's just fascinating when we look at the time frame, right? These, these are the people of Israel. These they just been through the the Exodus in the wilderness within a few generations, and they're already forgetting everything about who God is. So I mean, it, it, Deuteronomy six sixteen, right? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, Gideon doesn't understand that still. So he makes these demands. God, in his merciful, loving nature, he still acquiesces to Gideon's demands. He he, he provides the signs that, that Gideon is asking for. And, and Jesus kind of does the same thing for Thomas, right? Um, it might be surely a clear confrontation, I think, with the, the Thomas narrative. Uh, when Jesus said, do you believe because you have seen? Blessed are those who will believe but have not seen. Um, you know, but he still offers up his, his hands and his side to Thomas. Mm. Um, here, the Lord still provides the, the signs that Gideon is demanding. Mm. Right. I mean, the, the, how does it go in the Old Testament, the, the creed that, that is given that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? And the Lord shows himself that way to Gideon here. He shows yeah. himself that way to the people of Israel really throughout the whole book of Judges. You know, I mean, again, just to to think about how deep the idolatry had run within Gideon's hometown, that they were yeah. angry that the idols had been destroyed, and yet the mm-hmm. Lord didn't wipe them out there. Here you've got the one who's been clothed the Spirit of the Lord now falling into doubt, and and the Lord graciously gives him these signs that he asks for. And these signs center around a, a fleece, which a, yes. a, a fleece is a, a sheepskin, right? What's what's the significance yeah. of that? Yeah, well, there's, there's lots there. Uh, I'm going to back up real quick second here with the idea that uh, even one that's been clothed with the Spirit can experience these doubts and things. Hmm. Uh, t- t- to me, my mind, it went to 2 Corinthians 12, 9, you know, um, when Paul is talking about the thorn in his side that he's asked to be removed, God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. That's true for Gideon too. Gideon's thorn is clearly fear and doubt. Um, and so even in that, yeah, he's going to provide, he's, how is he going to, how is God going to overcome these fears? How is he going to overcome these doubts with a, a, a fleece? Now, if you look to the, the church fathers, there's a lot of talk about the, the, the fleece is Israel and the ground is the, the Gentiles and things. And I, I think they're, they're, they're going way too deep. I think it's much simpler than that. What is the first thing that comes to our mind when we think about fleece? We think of sheep, right? And, and when sheep are mentioned in the Bible, we automatically think of either the people as, as God's sheep or the people of the good shepherd, or we think of Jesus as the lamb. And I think a singular fleece being used here as an instrument for God to drive out the doubt, I think it's it's clear that this fleece is, you know, even if unintentional, definitely an allusion to who Christ is, the, the true deliverer, the true savior. 
he is the perfect lamb. He is the perfect fleece with, without blemish. And through him, God takes care of all of our, our problems, whether it's, it's, it's doubt, whether it's fear, any sin. Right? Um, ultimately, I think it's the ultimate Savior being the Lamb of God, the true Deliverer being the sheep who is silent before his shearers, all uh, Isaiah 53, 7. The idea that God will use a lamb to be the symbol of divine mercy and love, I think it prefigures John's message in 1 John 4, 18, perfect love drives out fear, as that's the theme of throughout this text. He's doing that here with the fleece. Right? It is only through him that we experience ultimate salvation, and so I think it all ties nicely together that God's perfect fleece is going to prefigure that perfect judge. Through this one, he's going to drive out all of our fear. He's going to drive out all of our doubt, the perfect loving Savior. And in that way, this this imperfect judge, he receives all the benefits that belief and, and trust in God does, or anyone, excuse me, anybody who has trust in God, anyone who has faith, they're going to receive all those benefits. And so he ends up being the type pointing forward to the ultimate one that will live that perfectly. Gideon is a type for Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the fleece the fleece points to the true deliverer, Jesus Christ, crucified for us on the cross. Pastor Rick Jones is the chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Judges chapter 6, verses 25 through 40. Pastor Jones, thanks for being our guest today. Absolutely, Timothy. I appreciate it. The sign is the fleece, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the true deliverer, the one who delivers us from our enemies, from our doubts, from our fears, from all idolatry, the one who contends for us. He does not need us to fight for him. He justifies us through his blood shed on the cross. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.